This is Prayer Room Companion, episode 46, recorded March 30th, 2011. Peter, do you love me? Welcome to this week in Prayer Room Companion. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and back with me once again is the tanned and rested Father Andrew Dickinson. There we go. You got a busy, busy week coming up here in a couple weeks, Father. You need to be rested. <laughs> Well, doubly busy uh, for me because uh, Easter week and Holy Week, uh, Holy Week is uh, the second to last week of classes. Easter week is the last week of classes. And then finals week uh, starts uh, on Monday after Divine Mercy Sunday. Wow. uh, But the good news is then that means that finals are done on May 7th and uh, my uh, parish becomes a ghost town. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in May, uh, but then again, I usually say yes to too many other good things during the summertime and keep myself busy. There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I know you'll have some things going on late May with Totus Tuus training and all that good stuff. So yes, Totus Tuus, not Hafus Tuus. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so um, let's just get right to it, Father. We we were talking about maybe talking about the papacy. Uh, the institution of the Bishop of Rome as the uh, universal shepherd uh, for the entire church. Of course, uh, it's, this is one of, if not the teaching, that, of course, other Christians uh, obviously object to. They don't mm-hmm. recognize his universal authority. One interesting thing before we sort of get into the scripture, though, Father, that, it, that, 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 that warms my heart is, is the the response with which John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI uh, have gotten from a number of at least scholars, um, certainly among the evangelical crowd, who have recognized their love for our Lord, uh, um, their love for Scripture, um, and have really, in some sense, obviously not give recognized the jur- uh, jurisdictional authority, the legal authority which uh, the papacy has, but at least the moral authority. That our current uh, Holy Father and his predecessor have. Um, I don't know if you've you've come across that or if you've seen that at all, but that's that. Well, actually, I, I've seen on street level even. Uh, I did a wedding a number of years ago where the uh, one of the parties wasn't Catholic, was actually Lutheran, and a very uh, one of the more uh, uh, rigid Lutheran groups or conservative Lutheran groups or I don't know whatever you want to say it. Sure. Um, but uh, and uh, the. The father comes up to me at the reception, uh, father of, uh, the father of the Lutheran, and says, you know what I like about you Catholics? You got that Pope. And he just does a good job of keeping you all together. And I was like, oh, funny how that works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah funny. How, yeah, exactly. He does a good job of keeping you together. That's kind of his job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-two is it? Uh, strengthen your brethren when you've turned strengthen your brethren yeah exactly we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit um so one of the things <clears throat> well, uh, go ahead go ahead but i think it's also i think good to emphasize i think when you get down to it all discussions between uh catholics and non-catholics essentially will come down to this question of authority and who has authority and who has if you would in that sense uh control of some things right uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, in many ways, it comes down to how do you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. What's as you said? What's your authority? So, so for us, I mean, obviously, ultimately, we would agree with um, um, our other Christian brothers and sisters that Jesus Christ, uh, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, are our ultimate authority. Um, where we differ is 
what about what about the visible leadership of the church on earth? Is there did Jesus establish um, uh, visible authority for the church on earth? And obviously, we would say that yes, he did in the apostles. Uh, um, and most particularly in St. Peter. And you know what, I think what's some of the, one of the neat things to me about St. Peter, at, like many of the other apostles, if you just look at what we know about his life before he met Jesus, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a rabbi, he wasn't a scholar. He was, in a sense, an ordinary uh, Jewish man. He was, a, he was a fisherman in Capernaum, um, he worked with his brother and their and the, and their two good friends James and John, um, and and they were he was married, um, so you know just living life. And then you know one fateful day, his brother says, "We have found the Messiah," and they take Peter, Simon, his name's Simon, uh, to to meet this man from Nazareth, Jesus, and Jesus looks at Peter, and says uh, something. You, you are Cephas. He refers to him as uh, not not by his name Simon, but he refers him to the, by his name Peter. Uh, and and I think sometimes when I talk about uh, Peter and the papacy, imagine if you were Peter in that situation. So you're meeting this guy who claims to be the Messiah, and he comes up and he refers to you by a name that's not. In fact, it's not even a name at all. He says you're Rock. I'm like, oh, it's the Mia. Take care now. Bye bye. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. But no, he 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 stays for a while. He he follows Jesus, but then we're told also he he returns to Galilee and continues fishing until one day Jesus comes along, walking along the seashore, sees Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and calls them to be his disciples. So he had met Jesus, um, but he wasn't yet following Jesus until later, uh, a, a little while later at least. Uh, they, they, he he with his other uh, with his brother and his as two friends followed Jesus, and from that moment forward, um, he followed Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. And who was it that introduced him uh, to Andrew, Jesus? Andrew, his brother. Andrew, check him. Just check him. A- Andrew. Now let's see. I know that name from somewhere. I think. Just, just check him. Poor yeah. Ann. I, I, you know, uh, your namesake. The poor guy. In some ways, he introduces Peter to Jesus. Um, and yet, who goes to the transfiguration? Who goes in for the he- the raising of the dead? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Who's with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter, James, and John. Where the heck is Andrew? He's like, hey, I'm the one who brought you my brother. What's going on here? But he never does that. Well, we don't know that he does that. Well, not, knowing the rest of the disciples, I wouldn't doubt that he complained in <laughs> some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to be the modus operandi. Yes, it's certainly. What way to say that? It certainly, I believe it is. Or operandi, I think, is an alternate pronunciation. Either way, though. Um, something like that. So, so, but that's one of the things that just, you know, that I think oftentimes when we're talking about Peter and his, his role in the church, we jump into some of the texts and, and we can look at those. But just that reminder of how initially, what we know about his life before he met Jesus, um, and then... The beginning of his call, meeting Jesus, but then being called later to follow Christ, and then doing so again for the rest of his life. I, th- I think that's—I th- I don't think we should skip over it as quickly, quickly as I think we sometimes do. No, I, it's, uh, sorry, I'm a little brainstruck on that, but yeah, it's. Uh, why would we want to skip over then? Just kind of go to the 
flow of things because it strikes right to the heart of all that Jesus intends both I think it's incarnational it's part of how he calls us to follow after him in general calls any of us to follow after him and it's also it's it's part of that earthy reality and that there is uh, that there is room for scandal in that sense there's room even for imperfection in the church that our Lord forms yep and just that, that growth in discipleship I mean uh, he didn't follow him right away he, but he did later and so I mean you know sort of the meeting but not, not committing initially right away uh, until later that's yeah I think it's part of the reality of of discipleship throughout time not just then well and um, they I don't want to jump the gun on some scripture, but we can dig into this actually a little more on, uh, uh, we talk about uh, uh, John chapter 21, um, but uh, how even there, and then if we look at the rest of Peter's life, you know, and the kind of the extra biblical accounts of Peter's life, how uh, our Lord still continues to meet him, uh, even in his weakness and his own imperfection. Right. So, yeah, I mean, go just briefly to talk about the uh, the extra biblical accounts that that we know of, uh, what's the story? He, he's he's fleeing Rome, right? Right. That uh, it's the it's the persecution persecution of Nero, and uh, where uh, Nero has burned down the city of Rome, and now he's burning Christians. And so, uh, whether at the behest of others or at his own behest, Peter decides to leave Rome, oh. and he's going out on the is it the Appian Way? Yep. Yep. Out on the Appian Way, uh, and as he's going out, he sees an image of our Lord coming back into Rome, carrying the cross. And he says to him, he says, you know, Quo vadis? Quo vadis domine? Where are you going, Lord? And the Lord says, yeah, I, go, I go in to suffer and die. And so Peter turns around at that point and goes back into Rome to face his crucifixion and death. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that he, as you said, whether he was going because... Others told him, you know, you get, you're the leader of the church, you need to get out, or, or whether he was leaving on his own, um, he was leaving, he, he, he was leaving the persecution, and as that, that scene, um, he remembered, you know, he's supposed to follow his Lord no matter what, and, and, and yeah, we'll look at John 21 and, and see um, how that was sort of foreshadowed or foretold by Jesus after the resurrection. Um, I think, though, well, before we get into the actual text, just another broad thing. It's interesting to me, you know, Peter's always speaking on behalf of the apostles. I mean, there's no doubt that once he became one of Jesus' disciples, once he became one of the twelve, he had a leadership role. Jesus asks him questions on behalf of the group, or Jesus asks the apostles questions, and Jesus answers, or, sorry, Peter answers on behalf of the group. Um, Peter, people who come up, and maybe have a question for Jesus, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they'll go to Peter. So for the collection of the temple tax, um, the, the temple guards uh, come and they talk to Peter about the tax that Jesus and his disciples um, are to pay. Uh, so all, the, all these different ways where Peter is, um, at least de facto, the leader of, of the apostles. Uh, and then we see in, in some of the texts, more well-known texts, where that, that de facto leadership uh, because becomes formalized, and probably the most famous is in Matthew 16, um, when um, at Caesarea Philippi, in front of this huge rock face, this massive cliff, uh, Jesus asks the disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" And so they tell them what the word on the street is, and then he says, "Who do you say that I am?" Uh, and of course, it's Peter 
who speaks up on behalf of the Twelve, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and, and Jesus praises Peter and, and notes that his response didn't come from his own wisdom, from human wisdom, but as was revealed to him by uh, his Father in Heaven. And he says to him, and, and I, we keep calling him Peter, but we have to remember his name was Simon. Uh, he'd been called Simon for 30-ish years, and it's at this point that Jesus says, you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And he changes Simon's name to rock, or the way that one, um, frankly, really bad translation, but trying to be colloquial, Jesus says, you are rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. <laughs> trying to drive home the fact, you know, when I present, I put up an image of um, uh the Italian stallion at that point. Hey, yo, Adrian! Say, what, what did Peter say in the response? Yo. Uh, but but that's, I mean, Jesus changes Peter's name, and I think sometimes, you know, we're just so used to calling him Peter, We for, remember, he, he's changing his name, and that's significant. Right, we well, can look at uh, the different name changes uh, throughout um, the, uh, throughout the scriptures. You know, Abraham being changed, or Abram being changed to Abraham. Uh, we have, uh, uh, Jacob being changed to Israel, he who struggles with God. We have, um, uh, uh, then, uh, of course, in the New Testament again, we have Saul being changed to Paul. Right. Uh, they're uh, symbolizing the mission to the Gentiles. But uh, even in, in, in the Gospels itself, Jesus, the only other people that Jesus maybe plays around with their name would be James and John uh, when he calls them Bonerges, yep. you know, the sons of thunder. But that's that's not a uh, uh, name that he always uses for them. Typically, they're called James and John. Right. You know, Peter is the one whose name uh, is changed, and in a sense, changed definitively. Right, uh, and, and and you know, I think another thing with with a name change that's not something that's not as apparent to us uh, for the Semitic mindset to change your name is very much who you are. For us, it's more sort of a a tag, a descriptor. It's my, you know, Father Andrew. It's the, it's the way, much sort of shorthand for me to refer to you. Um, but, but for um, the Jewish people and and like the other people of the the Middle East, your name is much more intimate than that. To to speak somebody's name is to say indicate some familiarity in a sense um, with them. And so when Jesus changes his name. Uh, and you sort of allude, you mentioned that the, with the Old Testament figures, there's a change uh, in identity and mission that happens as well. And so Simon's name becomes Rock. He is the Rock in which Jesus will build uh, will build his church. And, and and we're also told in Matthew 16, Jesus says, "I will build, uh, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if you really, again, I think this is something that's lost on, on at least many of us who, are, who, who don't know our Old Testament real well. Um, that's very much hearkening back to the role of the prime minister of the Davidic kingdom. Um, you can, in Isaiah 22 and other places, we see where there's this figure who was the king's right-hand man who oversaw the administration of the kingdom. Even though the king, you know, I think sometimes we think of prime minister like in England. Uh, the prime minister is basically the person who runs the show. Um, the, the monarch is, is um, has, has uh, I don't know, some 
some some importance for the people, but doesn't really run the show. That wasn't the case in the Divinity Kingdom. The king was very much in charge, but he was often concerned with sort of external, exterior relationships with other nations, conquering and so on. Um, and the prime minister sort of ran the internal kingdom. Uh, and, 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 and so we see in the Old Testament this role of prime minister in which uh, the office was transferred from one man to another uh, with the symbol being a key, and they literally controlled the keys to the city of Jerusalem. And one interesting yeah. thing to me, to, to me, Father, is uh, in the Old Testament there are times when um, the, the prime minister is retur- said he is referred to by the people as their father. Uh, so when we think about in the New Testament... Peter being that prime minister, Peter receiving the keys, Peter in a sense being the father when the king is engaged in sort of other affairs, so to speak, Jesus, um, we refer, over time, we come to refer to Peter's successors as Papa, Pope, Holy Holy Father. Uh, and again, this is not just making this up. It's it's rooted in in ultimately in the Old Testament reality of the role that Peter comes to fulfill himself. Exactly, and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm supposed to go with that. Sorry, uh, <laughs> brain brain melting. Um, I was thinking back on something on the uh, on the rock, but uh, yeah, in, in the sense of that fatherly care. Right. Uh, uh, and, and to extend that fatherly care of the king, that sense, of, and because they recognized, they would have recognized that, um, well, he, even a good faithful Jew uh, in the times of David recognized that the true king is uh, the Lord, and that David uh, stands in kind of a kingship of not of ownership but stewardship. Right. Right. Uh- yeah, and, and so taking that on um, with, with Peter, that he is yeah the steward of, of, of the king, so to speak. Yes, without doubt. Um, anything else about Matthew 16? That, that Well, yes, actually. Um, someone was pointing out, I was reading recently in a Bible timeline book, when we refer to Jesus as a carpenter, you know, what was the kind of a carpentry work that they did in, uh, in Israel in those days? I, I don't know. Ah, it's a good question, isn't it? Most of it was actually stonework. And the Greek word for carpenter is actually more of, uh, of uh, someone like a stonemason. So it's interesting when we think about Jesus as a carpenter. You know, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Um, remember those bumper stickers? Yes, Joke? yes, okay. yes. yes. So, right. Sorry. But, <laughs> so we think about Jesus as a carpenter. Um, as a tecton, but really as a stonemason in a sense. And so it's him, you know, who says, uh, he's the one who's saying, you know, you are rock. You know, this is the rock in which I'm going to build my church. And, uh, uh, you know, and also the fact that they're in Caesarea Philippi, you know, and Caesarea Philippi was a town uh, dedicated by King Herod, dedicated to the Roman Empire, who emperor who claimed he was a god, Caesar Augustus. Right. You know, he claimed that he was a god. And so uh, Jesus is in that town, dedicated there, and it's there in front of that town that he uh, declares that, no, this is the rock. This is the rock who will, um, on whom I will build my church. And then also you look, uh, you think about uh, just nine chapters before, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 
and the the culminating uh, idea of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, building your house on rock or building your house on sand. Sure. And so now Jesus is following his own advice in this sense, and that he's going to build and establish his church on a rock. Yeah. 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 Cool. Very cool. And also, but it also calls to mind that the role of the Pope is not to be a thing unto himself. Right. You know, but the Pope is supposed to represent Jesus. One of the titles we use for him is that he is a vicar of Christ. Vicar is almost a legal term of kind of a representative, someone who makes present someone else when they can't be there. Right. And so he is the vicar of Christ. He makes Christ present among us, uh, even uh, when he is, you know, as we know, he's we're waiting his return. And in the Old Testament, any uh, use of the word rock, rock was always about God. Mm. You know, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my arms for battle, my hand to bend the bow. Um, and so God was usually the rock in that sense. Um, and so, but now he is uh, creating a rock who represents himself. Sure. And even though, of course, you know, our Lord is... Our Lord is present to us, but not not the same way he was, obviously, when he was on this earth. And so he has this representative, this vicar, as you were saying, um, who administers the kingdom on his behalf. Uh, even He is spiritually present, but not physically present in the same way that he was. So, and so he has this, this man who can represent himself and ad- administer the kingdom. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we referred uh, early on, actually, you referred to um, Luke 22 at the Last Supper, what um, what Jesus says to Simon Peter then as well. And I, this is this is a much shorter passage, but also I think um, um, instructive and important to look at. This is verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, plural that he might sift you, plural, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you, singular, have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So Simon has demanded to have all of the apostles, uh, that he might sift them like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Of course, it's right after this that Peter, in his uh, impetuousness, says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until three times that you know, until three times, you three times deny that you know me. So, Peter, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. When you have turned, after you have repented of your denial, of your sin, strengthen your brethren. And that's, as, as you alluded to, that's what Peter and his successors have been doing for the last 2,000 years. Right, is that strengthening? And seeing that um, in the sense of um, seeing, seeing that in the sense of uh, the comment of uh, this uh, Lutheran father, uh, this Lutheran dad, I should say, who spoke to me and complimented uh, Catholics on having a pope who keeps us organized and that way keeps us together. Right, and even though, I mean, obviously, uh, like kids can, we don't always obey him. Some of us want to ignore him, um, uh, but there's still that role that he fulfills, that he plays as he has ever since the beginning, Peter and his apost- his successors. 
the other, anything anything else from Luke 22, Father, that you think is worth mentioning? No, I think it'd be fun to move to John 21. Great. So you want to tee this one up? I certainly will. Uh, John 21 is kind of that great uh, uh, restoration uh, vision. This is where um, it's a vision of Jesus after the, I shouldn't say vision, but an appearance, uh, a revelation of Jesus uh, to the disciples, to the apostles after the resurrection where they're fishing. And of course, one of my favorite commands of Jesus in all scriptures, come have breakfast. Amen. Yes, that'd be John 21, 12, which is nice because it's kind of the mirror image, 2, 1, 1, 2. But uh, at the breakfast... You just have to imagine now, because Jesus appeared a couple of times, but nowhere has he addressed the betrayal of Peter. Right. Nowhere has he addressed Peter weeping bitterly. Nowhere has he addressed the fact that, as you said, Peter impetuously promised something, okay, and didn't do it. You know, and there had to have been some tension in this way. There had to have been, you know, I mean, after the joy at the same time, there's probably some, okay, when's he going to talk about it? It's just a kind of a human expectation. And I'm on, they're si- and so they're sitting there having breakfast. And so while they're at breakfast, uh, it says, while they had, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now, in my mind, I can almost see this like Peter still with a mouth f- half full of fish, <laughs> you know, or something like that, or, you know, eating one last piece of bread. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns to him and says, you know, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we know this threefold conversation. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend to my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Um, Peter was distressed. They said to him a third time, do you love me? Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Now, one of the interesting things on this is that in the Greek, uh, the original text of this, and this three, well, actually two interesting things, I should say. We'll go into love first. That is that the love that Jesus is asking from him, he's asking him agape, mm-hmm. um, which is that love of self-sacrifice, that love of God, the highest love in the Greek vocabulary. Do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, I philos, right? I I love you, that love of, or not, yeah, philos, yes, okay. Yep. Sorry. Uh, so after Peter answers that way, Jesus doesn't get upset with him. He says to him again, you know, Simon, son, John, do you agape me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I philos you. He says, all right, we'll feed and tend my sheep. And the third time he says to him, Simon, son, John, do you philos me? And we have the distress of Peter at the three times, do you love me? Of course, harking back to the three times there. But we see how Jesus meets Peter, uh, even in the midst of his uh, inability maybe to love him the way that he should. Right? And he's not ready to give that self-sacrificial love yet. Yes, I'll, I'll love you as a friend. I'm not ready to do that self-dying love. And then Jesus kind of gives a prophecy there in verse 18. Amen, amen. I say to you, when you were younger, you should dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And so just seeing how our Lord and his love for him will fulfill his philos love and by the grace of God turn it into that agape, that sacrificial love at the time of his death. Right. And, and we talked about that briefly with the uh, story of the Appian Way and Quo Vadis Domini. Right. And what I love is that the tradition says that Peter, uh, and it's verified by archaeological evidence, um, was crucified um, 
near the current St. Peter's um, in uh, one of Nero's circuses, crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was um, worthy really? to be crucified the way that Jesus was. And what strikes me is you know, it was just in the in, during World War II in the 40s, Pius XII secretly commissioned the excavations under St. Peter's. They found the bones of a, of a man in his, uh, I think, 60s, um, but he was missing his feet. Uh, why was he missing his feet? Because when you they crucified Peter upside down to get him down, they cut off his feet at the ankles. Romans not being particularly concerned about the dignity of the human body. Not really. So, so yeah. So that, that but as you said, I mean, that, that that just the beautiful reality of Peter recognizing where Jesus was at, but still. Uh, uh, Jesus recognizing where Peter was thank at. Thank you. As I was just saying that they're not wrong. It's sort of the opposite of that, really, isn't it? Sort of the opposite. Um, <laughs> Jesus recognizing where Peter at, meeting him where he is, but then, as you said, giving him the grace and and prophesying um, the fulfillment of his that agape love, which he would offer, which he would demonstrate in offering himself uh, on the cross in his own way. Right. And another thing that someone else points out is that in that, um, he really then finally fulfills uh, his title as a shepherd there, where Jesus says to him, tend, you know, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. He's giving him his role as shepherd, remembering going back a few chapters earlier in John's gospel. Who's the shepherd in John's gospel? Jesus. Jesus is. I am the good shepherd. Who does what? Tends my sheep. Who lays down his life for his sheep. Oh, yes. There we go. Right. So now we can see how Jesus comes to that point of fulfilling that. Or, I mean, Peter comes to that point of fulfilling that role of of uh, laying down his life for the sheep. Following, once again, the example of the shepherd, our Lord, as you said. The good and great shepherd. Cool. So, yeah. So, and the other thing, one of the interesting things to me, too, is... Um, uh, the word I think for ten, the Greek word for tend my sheep um, indicates authority over um, that that Peter has authority over. And in fact, this is one of the passages that Vatican One in teaching and defining the the uh, the role of the Pope in the Church pointed to this passage and its indication of the authority. Um, that Peter was to have and did have in the early church, and we see that too. I mean, we don't have time to get. There's so, of course, there's so much more than we've had time to get into it all here uh, today. But, but in the early church, the role that Peter has of, of exercising leadership, we see that leadership continually mas- manifested again and again, um, and by his successors as well. Exactly in that um, life of sacrifice. Right. Yep. Yep. So. So yeah, but again, there's there's so much more, of course. I mean, in a 30 minute podcast, we're just going to touch, scratch the surface barely. Um, there are plenty of resources out there, a number of excellent books, articles, um, lots of stuff online to find. But if you ever have any more, anybody wants more uh, more specific information or, or um, uh, specific titles, I think both Father and I would be happy to give some recommendations. Without a doubt. So, anything else, Father? Not at this time. All right. Well, with that, we will uh, wrap up, and uh, we'll be back again next week for another episode of Prairie Rome Companion. God bless.